Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Happy New Year's Eve. Maybe it's On today's program, we'll look back at 2023. We'll revisit one of my favorite features from the past year when I sat down with award-winning chef and author Jason Hamill to talk about his new book. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to discuss their favorite productions from the past year. And later, WDCB's own Paula Bella and Leslie Karras will stop by to highlight their favorite jazz albums of 2023. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. A beautiful new cookbook offers readers a glimpse inside one of Chicago's most celebrated restaurants. Lula Cafe has been winning over diners since it first opened its doors in September of 1999. Never content to play it safe, Lula executive chef and co-owner Jason Hamill is known as a pioneer in the local farm-to-table movement. The restaurant's ambitious approach to cooking helped make Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood the culinary destination it is today. The new Lula Cafe cookbook sheds light on that innovative spirit. It features 90 full recipes and 40 quote-unquote building block recipes designed to elevate your cooking in simple ways. But the 272-page book also offers some insight into the improbable journey Hamill and his wife-slash-partner Leah Childs have taken over the past 25-plus years. When Hamill arrived in Chicago in 1996, his plan was to be a writer. In fact, he came to Logan Square after working on his master's at Illinois State under the mentorship of an author widely recognized as one of the most talented writers of the last 50 years, the late David Foster Wallace. So how does a creative writing grad with no formal culinary training end up running one of Chicago's favorite restaurants? Is that table 51? Yeah, it is over there. Yeah, that's table 51 over there on the window. That's That's where it all started. That is where it started right there. That was one of the topics I was interested in discussing when I caught up with Hamill at Lula Cafe. We talked about a variety of topics, including his passions for cooking and writing. So was creative writing your first passion and what you hoped you would end up doing? Maybe when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a rock star. I mean, who didn't want to be a rock star when they were, you know, 14 or 15? But writing songs and journaling turned into like a serious, like, interest in writing when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, like in early college years. And then I, you know, focused on that. I was like writing fiction and short stories. I went to I went to a school that had a great writing program and I focused on that for the undergrad years and then I went to graduate school for creative writing here in Illinois after undergrad and in between lived in Italy for a little while. For folks that uh, know Lula Cafe and know your name I think would be surprised by your journey to create this restaurant. I don't know if happenstance is the right word, but like just life events kind of put you on a different trajectory. Yeah, sometimes I say that chef life was an accidental one. It's something that happened to me. I, I don't think I was searching it out. And when I look back though, like many things do, it all sort of made sense. Like there was a guiding hand, you know, some kind of guiding, you know, force 
pushing me through to these various things. But I moved to Chicago um, and was part of a creative community in my 20s. That was super important to me here in Logan Square. Logan Square took me in. This particular cafe that I used to hang out took me in, and that's where I met almost all of the friends that I still have today. And those were artists, writers, you know, filmmakers, musicians, all sorts of like really just makers and doers, like trying to you know make their way in the world. And that's where I felt most comfortable, and you know, made my closest friends. That was my community, and food ended up being the way of me connecting with that community ultimately. So I want to come back to that thread, but I, just a quick detour because you write about it in your, your intro, but when you go to, to study at Illinois State, you end up working with a mentor that I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with. What was it like working with David Foster Wallace? I, I mean, I'm often asked that question. I mean, it's something that's really hard to describe, and it's uh, you know, a really brilliant, brilliant man, and uh, you know, obviously like a great critic of of writing and and style and diction and language i mean he was fascinated by and you know engaged by student writing i'm not sure he loved my writing uh in fact i think he actively disliked it a lot and uh called me out you know i i i went to kind of like a uppity east coast ivy league school for my undergrad and i think he was you know pretty clear like hey you know you gotta check yourself um and uh, it was a big ego check for me um to have him critique the work i was doing uh, and i needed it and i took the you know the sort of advice he gave me seriously and at the same time like i and I described this in the introduction to the cookbook, he also gave me this like sense that what I was doing was valuable and like I should continue. And that was, I mean, didn't give it a, a lot. I was, you know, wasn't filled with support, but I did get this sense that like, it, you know, he, he believed in me, which he did give to, you know, all the students. And that did carry me a lot uh, when I was writing this cookbook. So when you came to Chicago in 1996, was the plan to continue writing or were you just open to like what Chicago brought to you? No, I was trying, I was actively writing. I was writing, I wrote a book of short stories I was working on and I started working on a novel. Um, and I, you know, I was coming to this cafe in the morning and writing and working at a restaurant at night as a cook. And I was trying to sort of live in the neighborhood and make the neighborhood populate the stories and, and, and fiction that I was writing. So, you know, Logan Square in the 90s, you know, very different than Logan Square in 2023, full of characters and, you know, uh, unique turns of the neighborhood that I, you know, put into all the stories that I was working on. Um, That's what I was trying to do when I first moved here. Some might call it kismet. Hamill visited the space that would one day become Lula Cafe on the day he moved to Chicago. The place was called Logan Beach, and it's where his now wife worked as a cook. You know, the space that we're in right now, talking, was originally a cafe, the cafe that I mentioned hanging out in, and my wife, Leah Childs, was a cook at this cafe, and I met her here, and, you know, we first became friends, and we actually started this little soup company together. I was cooking at a restaurant, I was interested in food, and she was a cook at a restaurant, and I really loved her soups. She had great, she had amazing you know, touch and like ability to create flavor in, uh, in soups. And so I was talking to her once and we, at Lounge Ox, which is a, a rock club long, you know, 
long gone but never forgotten <laughs> um, after a show. And we just struck up this conversation where we're like, you know, your soups are amazing. Like, you know, maybe we could sell them at cafes and, the, and you know, we just took off this idea in our heads. And, and so we started making soup together and driving it around town and selling it to cafes that didn't have kitchens. You know, this is like pre-Starbucks era. So you can imagine all these like little, you know, shops, 90s coffee shops under every L station, you know, on the north side. We were doing that a lot. And it became kind of popular. And uh, at the same time, we were cooking these soups out of the cafe um, where she worked. It was called Logan Beach Cafe. and. Uh, eventually that cafe uh, closed and we were able to take it over and transform it into Lula. And that's how we ended up with a restaurant. We didn't search out a restaurant, it kind of searched us out. And then there's a whole story about you tasted your eventual wife's soup before you you met her. Yeah, and the funny story is that I was actually dating someone named Leah. So I was dating a Leah and then I met a, a different Leah and then ended up marrying Leah, the second one, uh, with... Uh, uh, a whole life uh, ahead of us that we didn't even couldn't even imagine you know being chefs and parents and you know business owners so that's where we hear that's you know where we find ourselves today and that soup uh, it's like a sweet and sour cabbage i know it's in the book is it still on the menu yeah we it's one of those dishes that is we consider part of the cafe menu which is like a regular um thing that we keep keep around uh just to keep sort of our dishes change every day here, um, for the most part, um, and then we keep a you know a core group of dishes the same in order to keep that like balance between like fresh new ideas and the comfort of something that you is familiar and recognizable to you. One of the things that like really struck me reading your intro story about uh, how Lula Cafe came to be was just how different the, uh, let alone Logan Square, obviously totally different, but just like opening a restaurant in 1999, so different than what it would be like opening a, a restaurant in, in 2023. But no experience. Also, just the culture of restaurants was really different. I mean, this is pre-chef's table, pre-the menu, pre-the bear, you know, so there was like, it just wasn't the same sort of like center of culture that it is now. The restaurants of, you know, of note in the city were all downtown. They're kind of a fine dining or French or you know, Charlie Trotters, etc. Um, Blackbird had just opened up. But Lula is like out in this like neighborhood that, you know, wasn't as well known. And we were, you know, serving a, like a lot of the same ingredients that like the fancier restaurants were. So we just sort of like opened up without anybody paying attention to us. So it was just and we were able to grow organically. And it's just not something that can happen these days. The cost to entry is much higher and it's uh, it's you know, a very different world. I mean, that said, one of the things that I point out a lot to people when we're talking about where we are in the restaurant industry these days is that there is a resurgence of that kind of like creative energy in the like pop-ups and the like post-pandemic like economy of uh, small food businesses that's really exciting today. Um, and that came out of the pandemic. Um, so that's one good thing that <laughs> a few that came out of, you know, um, this like worldwide catastrophe but it, there's a marked difference in food culture with restaurants today than there was in 1999. And I don't want to oversell it because I, all of us, like everyone listening, and we all have like these moments in our life, but really the stars did align for the journey you ended up taking, you being in this neighborhood at that time. Oh yeah, the stars aligned in a major way. <laughs> being able to enter this space without you know, a huge debt meant a lot of freedom and we were able to try things out and just be ourselves for you know for, for years 
We also sort of found um, the farm-to-table movement, or whatever you want to call that, concurrent with our opening. So when we opened was when Green City Market, the central market in Chicago here, like really first started. And when some of the farmers in Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin and Illinois really recognized Chicago as a potential marketplace for, you know, high-quality organic uh, fruits and vegetables and meats and other products. Um, that market kind of exploded at the same time that Lula did. So like we were um, so excited about discovering new farmers and like reaching out and like being part of this like new movement toward um, knowing your farmer, knowing where things come from, and celebrating the bounty of the Midwest. And that was like at the same time that we were growing up and as a restaurant. So like we kind of grew up together and we both benefited each other. That's one thing I wanted to ask you about it. There was this community here, Logan Square, Logan Beach Cafe, you take it over. You could have kept doing what was happening here, but there seems to be like this thought from you and your partner that you wanted to like push the envelope and do exciting things was that from the beginning you both had similar ideas of of what this was going to be. Both of us got obsessed with cooking and what we could do and being creative through food. And also just the restaurant got busy and we had an amazing staff of people that we felt very close with and so those early years were just like they're like they felt we felt like a band you know what i mean just like at putting out new records and like coming up with songs and like you know people like hang you know like getting new players on the on the stage with us and it 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 was a lot of fun it's also pre-kids so we had a lot of freedom in those years so yeah we were really we were really in sync with about about growth And growth was never about, it's never been about making money because, um, you know, in, in many ways, like being like wildly creative and like trying new dishes every week and, you know, buying the ingredients that we buy, those, none of those things are really good for bottom line profits. Um, it would be better if we just like made everything smaller and, you know, bought junky ingredients and charged high prices. Like, so, I mean... These weren't business decisions. These were all like just passion. And yes, we both shared that passion deeply and we love restaurants. We love to talk about it. We still still do. And we love to talk about, you know, uh, food and uh, and the qualities uh, that people bring to food businesses and to hospitality. So yes, we were like totally in sync and we cooked together every day. And I still really count on um, Leah's palate and her like sensibility when running this restaurant. There's advantages to going to culinary school and going that path. Is there advantages of not going that and figuring it out the way you did? There are definitely advantages to um, the path that I took. Um, I think the success of Lula and just like the the energy and uh, to use a you know contemporary term like the vibe you get like at Lula <laughs> like you know it's all about being young and not knowing what you're doing and just doing it anyways like that's what this space is about you know and I feel like that that sense of like authenticity comes through in the space it's a lot harder to be authentic when you've like learned everything from the masters and then you know you know interned at this place and then spent all these different years under the tutelage of x y and z it's a lot harder to feel free and you know a lot harder to you know express without restriction so you know for me it was a you know i'm glad i didn't go to culinary school at the same time would i have liked to spend years learning some (laughs) techniques so yes i feel like at a loss for that you know
If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking with acclaimed chef Jason Hamill about the history of his restaurant, Lula Cafe, and his new cookbook. You had been approached with an idea, or a chef had suggested your name to the, the publisher. So it was already out in the universe, this idea to, to make a cookbook? Yes, it was. Before the pandemic, I had submitted a proposal before the pandemic, but even years before that, like a chef, Jeremy Fox of Rusty Canyon in Los Angeles, had suggested to fight in that they check Lula out. And I think uh, Emily Takudas, who's the commissioning editor of Fightin, uh, had been to Lula before and uh, was interested. So, you know, it's kind of a matchmaker moment. If you were going to do a cookbook, what did you want it to be? Well, I think at the time I, uh, I saw it as an opportunity to connect like my love of storytelling with, uh, with recipes and how I think about the community of, uh, of makers and, uh, around food here that I, that I work with in terms of farmers and artisans that we support and then how that connects to the creativity of the Lula menu. That was my first, you know, my first instinct and like the thought behind the, the book at the beginning. It was always also about like the specific day of the dish. Like we, because we change the menu so often, we stamp the day of the the day, the month, the year of that menu on every menu that we do. And that was always going to be like this sort of like organizing principle behind the book, which is that there was there's a day we created this dish and we're capturing that moment. So the headers and the recipes were always going to be like little vignettes and stories that connect to those moments. When the pandemic happened, it became, the urge to tell these stories became more urgent, you know, the urge became urgent. <laughs> I felt a sense of urgency um, and the sense that like I could lose the restaurant or I wanted to preserve it or something like that. And so um, the writing was all done during, you know, the time that we sort of came back from being closed. Like the first months of the, the shutdown, you know, was too busy to do anything for me and I was struggling just to figure out how to piece it together and then when we started just being a takeout restaurant is when I started writing the book in earnest testing recipes going back in time looking through old notebooks writing headers etc what was the uh, curation process like you have a limited amount of space in the book certainly have you know we had a limited amount of space no one would want to see all the recipes <laughs> there are thousands I think I just it, w it was by instinct and, you know, just sort of trying to pick from different years. You know, it was about what I could best represent, uh, both in terms of the writing, recipe writing, and in, you know, the photography that was done by Carolina Rodriguez, like what we could best capture. Lula Cafe will celebrate its 25th anniversary next year. The approaching milestone made me curious about Hamill's future plans. I know if this hit you with a lot, probably thinking about the future is not something you're eager to, to talk about. But do you think about if there will be an end or is it something you pass on? Well, I have two children. I don't think either of them want to take over this restaurant, so that's okay. <laughs> but in terms of passing it on, um, I think I'm already in the process of sort of engaging the like next generation of leaders here to, to take control. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm out or anything. I just, you know, am in a great place where I have amazing managers who are running, you know, running the show. I'd like Lula to be in, you know, Chicago institution, kind of like, I don't know, I'd love it to be like a Zuni cafe or, you know, Chez Panisse of Logan Square. That's like my dream. I don't think we're there yet. So I'm going to just keep doing this. Restaurants are for the young because they, you know, you got to stand up all day long and carry heavy things and 
run around and and be uh, stressed out. Um, so I don't know. You know what I mean? Like I'll I'll do it as long as my uh, body, heart, and mind can can manage it. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Jason Hamill. He's the co-owner and executive chef of Lula Cafe and the author of the new Lula Cafe cookbook. It was published by the prestigious Fiden Publishing Company. You can find more info at lulacafe.com. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Happy New Year. Good, Good morning, morning, Gary. Good morning. I hope everyone had a very happy Christmas and is looking forward to a happy New Year. Yep. And more importantly, a healthy, a healthy 2024 for everybody. As we get ready for the new year, we wanted to take one last look back at 2023 and highlight some of your favorite productions from the past 12 months. So let's dive right in. Jonathan, what 2023 production has stayed with you the most? Well, several, and this is kind of in chronological order, but my first one is Mother House, a wonderful world premiere by Tucky White, produced by Rivendell Theater Company and a hit uh, in the uh, last winter that was extended several times, and they actually brought it back in the fall for a, a short run. It is a wonderful play. I remember writing and saying on the air, writing at the time, that sometimes, you know, your journey is more entertaining than the actual <laughs> destination. And this play was like that. The journey is about uh, a young adult daughter and her four aunts, now, the daughter's mother has died, and the daughter and her four adult aunts are getting together to write a eulogy for the, for the deceased's funeral. Well, they never do write the eulogy, but you learn a hell of a lot about the four aunts <laughs> and the daughter, and indirectly, indirectly the deceased mother, and it's a wonderful journey. This is an incredible ensemble piece. It had five wonderful actors in it and was a deserved hit for Rivendell, that wonderful, small, Edgewater, off-loop theater company, Mother House by Tucky White. I would jump onto that, too. I think one of the highlights for me this year in general was seeing such great all-female or all-femme-oriented ensembles on stage. Now, a slightly bigger stage than Rivendell's, but Goodman Theater's production of Pearl Clegg's The Nakarema Society featured one of the most Downing casts of all uh, all black women and one man uh, in, a, in a tale set in the early 1960s about a group of very exclusive upper class black women who are being kind of put face to face with the civil rights era. They're being brought. Uh, they're, they're, there's some sort of soap opera elements you might want to call them about. You know, who is the father of this child? What has happened in the past? So. It's all done at this sort of heightened comedic level directed by Lillian Brown, who remains one of our greatest, you know, treasures in Chicago directing. And the cast, oh my gosh, Ife Butler, Tyla Abercrombie, Ora Jones. I mean, I, I looked at this cast list when they first announced the show. I thought, well, if this isn't going to be something, then something's very wrong. Uh, I do want to give one shout out. Um, 
because she's also one of my going to be one of my choices for the people issue of the Chicago Reader. Shariba Rivers, who played the maid in the Nakarima Society, and didn't speak a single line, yet somehow held her own and indeed nearly stole the show from this tremendous cast. It was a funny, thought-provoking, wonderful exploration. Part of the Pearl Clegg Festival. Pearl Clegg is not a Chicago writer, but she's been produced here often enough that I felt that this was just a lovely, lovely tribute to her and just a, a cast that was just a joy to watch from beginning to end. Another choice that I have, and I found the play itself inspiring as well as the production, is Gospel at Colonists, produced by Court Theatre in the springtime, May and June. It's a show that had been seen in Chicago before, but not for probably 25 years or more. This is a Greek tragedy, Oedipus at Colonists, about the death of King Oedipus, the king who you know, that married his mother and killed his father and blinded himself. And as an old man, he finally comes to the spot where he's going to die and finds redemption. Well, this version, uh, uh, created by Lee Brewer uh, many years ago, takes this tragedy, adds gospel music to it, and brings it from the pagan era of Greek tragedy into a Judeo-Christian value system, and it does it brilliantly, and it does it with wonderful contemporary gospel music sung by a full-out choir, uh, in this case with a a new gospel score by Bob Telson. Uh, And this was a glory, about 90 minutes of exciting music and acting and an inspiring story. Gospel at Colonists at Court Theater. I will echo that. You know, I did see the production at the Goodman back in the, I guess, 1990, I think it was. Yeah. And that one had remained so strong in my memory, I thought, mm, I don't know if anything will ever compete with that. But Court did it in a completely different but equally wonderful kind of way. Um, I'm going to choose something from uh, from the canon, I guess we'll call it. Uh, Chicago Shakespeare's recent production of Twelfth Night, directed by Tyrone Phillips, artistic director of Definition Theater, set in the Caribbean. In fact, uh, Phillips himself is, I think, a... Uh, uh, first generation, his parents were first generation Jamaican immigrants, so it's got that sort of Caribbean flavor. But he did a wonderful job of resolving some of the issues I've had with this play, mostly in terms of the treatment of Malvolio, the priggish steward of the estate. Um, there's always been kind of a sour taste for me in this play, no matter how wonderfully it's done. Phillips made some just incredibly smart uh, decisions about how to handle that. It was filled with music. Uh, including reggae, including pop songs, hip-hop, you know, I think there's some hip-hop, some R&B, terrific cast, beautiful sets, and just a very, very magical experience, which is what you want with 12 Nights, after all. Uh, So uh, kudos to to Tyrone Phillips and the entire crew that worked on uh, 12 Nights this year. Indeed. Did you have a gin and coconut water to go with it? You know, I probably should have, but I was working, so I did. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My next choice is a play at Writers Theater in Glencoe, which also has spent this year under a new artistic director, completing his first year. And they did the uh, the regional premiere of a play called A Distinct Society by Karim Fami. And it is based on an actual fact, a library in Vermont that sits directly on the border between Vermont United States and and Canada. So the library is half in Vermont and half in Quebec, 
and there is a line painted on the floor down the middle. And for real, during the period of the Trump presidency, when when visitors were from certain Middle Eastern countries, Islamic countries, visitors were banned, they could still get into Canada. And so they would come to this library on the Canadian side to meet family, relatives, friends who were already living in the United States. And in this library, they could be in the same place at the same time. Now, the play is a a fictionalized version of this, focusing on a, a mother and daughter. It's an imperfect play. It only runs about 95 minutes and really tries to squeeze too many characters in. But it is so heartfelt, and the characters are so beautifully real, and they were all so beautifully acting under the playwright's direction that I really took to it, a distinct society at Writers' Theater. Well, playing on that theme, I'll keep with the idea of, you know, migration, immigration, identity, Port of Entry, Albany Park Theater Project's latest immersive show that they've developed in connection with Third Rail Project, a New York-based company they've worked with in the past. They have taken over a spot in Albany Park, away from their usual field house location, and created several uh, small apartment settings, and each of them represents, at various stages in time, different migrant families. This is a, an immersive, ambulatory show. You walk through the space, you are served tea, you are taught in one home how to play Loteria, and it's limited to 28 audience members per, per performance. But it's just a beautiful celebration of what it means to be a migrant, what it means to come to a new country, what are the echoes and the ghosts of the people who've lived in these apartments before you? Because Albany Park is one of our neighborhoods that is, indeed, a port of entry. So many different people from so many different parts of the world make that their first home. They are, I think, on a hiatus through the winter, uh, January and February, but they are coming back in spring. Uh, as I said, it's limited to 28 patrons per night, uh, so you want to get right on it if you're planning on going. But I think it's just such a unique experience and, indeed, a very heartwarming one as we think about what it means to be a sanctuary city or what it, what it means to be American. What does it mean to be an immigrant? What does it mean to try to assimilate? Uh, what does it mean to try to keep your customs? These are all questions that are handled in a beautiful and, and a very, in very visceral way in, in, at some points in this production. So definitely memorable for me. Nothing else like it out there. Indeed. And, uh, you know, Carrie, you and I as theater critics can relate because theater critics are always trying to be accepted as Americans. <laughs> Or humans, really, if you come down to it. <laughs> As humans, I, indeed. <laughs> and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. The Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, are here with me. And they're going over their favorite plays and musicals from 2023. Jonathan? Uh, in the fall, we were blessed with a, a wonderful production of a Harold Pinter play, the uh, Nobel laureate Harold Pinter, the British playwright, whose plays are sometimes described as comedies of menace. And one of his great pieces from the 1970s, No Man's Land, is set in London, and it's about a a, a power struggle, in effect, between two aging writers, one very successful and the other rather shabby and down on his heels. And this was given a really rich and wonderful production at the Steppenwolf Theatre Company, directed by the noted director, guest director to Chicago, Les Waters, and featuring Steppenwolf founder Jeff Perry as the wealthy, successful writer, and Mark Ulrich as the down-at-his-heels writer. And they were wonderful. The two of them were 
wonderfully nuanced and detailed, and uh, the play has a lot of comedy in it, and Jeff Perry certainly is a, a, a wonderful player of comedy, but also did superb physical work playing a an alcoholic who was some years older than himself, and I admired both the totality of the production and the individual performances a great deal. No Man's Land, the Harold Pinter play at Steppenwolf Theatre Company this past fall. Uh, one of my choices is a uh, the world sorry not the world premiere the U.S. premiere of a musical at Shattered Globe Theater, which is one of our longtime stalwarts of the storefront scene. They've been in residence at Theater Wit for some time now, so I don't know if that actually counts as storefront. They did the, the U.S. premiere of London Road, which was a show that was quite celebrated in Britain, and it's based on documentary interviews with the residents of Ipswich, a smaller-sized city, but uh, I think around 2006, several of the women who worked as sex workers on the, the road of the title, London Road, were found murdered. And it's not so much a, like a true crime story as it is, what did these murders mean to the community? How, you know, how again, did they view these women? Were, they, were these women members of the community? Are they outcasts? How, you know, what, who is doing this? Do we know this person? And it's all done in this sung-through style. I thought a really interesting score and not the easiest to produce. And also there's this technical element of a live feed that was incorporated throughout the show. So we would see uh, people disappearing behind, you know, what's supposed to be like their own apartments or their own homes, but then we would see their live feed faces as, as they were talking about these events. It sounds like it's a very heavy-going thing, and indeed at points it was, but I think it really was excellent as a portrait of a community that's being turned upside down and wondering how do we come back together. A very ambitious production, I thought, for Shattered Globe, and handled, I thought, just absolutely beautifully, directed by Elizabeth Margolius. Terrific cast, terrific musical direction by um, Andrevala Simon, and really a show that I've, I've been thinking about for months since I've seen it, which is always the mark of, of doing something right. <laughs> Indeed it is, and it was a wonderful production, a true ensemble piece. I believe it was a cast of... 12 or 13 uh, right. people. And interestingly, the score, uh, everybody had a solo line or two to sing, but no one individual ever had an entire song. Everything was ensemble, including including the score, shared and spread over the community. So that's really, really a wonderful choice. Um, another ensemble piece, though, did have three lead roles, is the Layman Trilogy, the piece that is about the history of the German-American Jewish family that started the, the Lehman Brothers uh, bank and brokerage business that went belly up during the Great, uh, the great Recession, as they called it, of uh, 2008 to 2010. By that time, the House of Lehman no longer was under the control of the Lehman family itself. And this play... Uh, covers the entire history from the 1840s to the 2010s. It's an intriguing piece. It started out as an Italian novel. It was adapted to the stage by a British writer and was a success first in London, then in New York. And we finally saw it in Chicago in a long run this fall, extended several times, produced by Timeline Theatre Company, but presented downtown at the Broadway Playhouse in the in, in Water Tower Place. And it was an excellent production with a wonderful cast 
and it talks about things that are so American, but also so universal about family, responsibility, opportunity, um, all of those sorts of things. And it really was a, a, a lovely production to see and an impressive one. The Layman Trilogy by Timeline Theater. You mentioned No Man's Land. I have a piece that's perhaps a little Pinterest as well, but in a much smaller facility, literally facility, Facility Theater, which is one of our newer storefronts in Humboldt Park, produced the U.S. premiere of a French uh, Canadian playwright, Catherine Antopan's Right Now, directed by the always engaging Dado, who has worked a lot at Red Orchid and other places. This is a play that feels like it's got elements of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Rosemary's Baby, the birthday party. It's essentially a story of two different families live across the hall from each other. There's a married couple whose uh, child, who have apparently lost their child. Uh, there's uh, the other married couple with a son who kind of invades their home, and it becomes very hallucinatory, very surreal, and in the hands of this tremendous ensemble at facility, uh, very, very funny. A very dark, disturbing, mind-bending uh, show with great dance breaks for uh, everything from, I think, Grooves in the Heart to Edge of Seventeen. It, it, difficult to describe, as you're perhaps noting, but a really interesting choice. Obviously, you know, a French-Canadian playwright is, is not particularly, who's not particularly well-known in the U.S., uh, might not be the first choice for a lot of companies, but they absolutely chose the right script, got the right ensemble. And facility itself is a lovely, small space, but very neatly put together by artistic director Kirk Anderson, who has been a stalwart on you know in many theaters around the city for a while. And I'm very, very happy to see that Humboldt Park, which already has urban theater company and has had some other cultural centers, has has a new has a new has a new uh, new face in town with facility. Uh, so that was right now facility theater. Okay. Did that production carry? Did that production feature the claw or a flying suplex? I don't think it did, but, yes. you know. <laughs> but you know what production did. This was Lucha Teotal uh, at the Goodman Theater, presented as part of the I mean, Destino. there was wrestling. Don't get me wrong. There was Destino. wrestling right now, but not right. like what you're about to talk about. Right. Destino. We, well, we've all known that wrestling is a metaphor for good or evil, with its good guys and its bad guys and its cheating and its dirty tricks. Well, make that into a stage play and make it not simply professional wrestling, but the mascaros of Mexican wrestling, the max masked and costumed figures. And that's Lucha Teotl, which came to the Goodman Theater from Dallas, Texas, where it was uh, developed by the Prison Movement Theater. And it's wrestling as a metaphor for the 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 journey of discovery of the hero, a real picaresque tale, and for the contrast of good and evil, all tied in with a bit of nonsense about the Aztec calendar and the old ancient Mexican gods. But the cast at the Goodman was half actors and half actual professional wrestlers. It was staged in a real wrestling ring, and they, by golly, they wrestled in front of you uh, physically, not simply wrestling with the issues of the play. And uh, it may not have been, you know, the most wonderful play you ever saw, but it's as brilliant as any production I've ever seen. And the commitment of the actor-wrestlers was absolutely real and total. 
So that's my final choice, the really memorable shows of 2023. Lucha Teatro at the Goodman Theater, which we've seen and we, in October. And we should mention that that was part of the Destinos Chicago International Latino Theater yes. Festival, which continues for me to be just a bright spot, the largest Latina theater company, or sorry, theater festival in North America, encompassing national, international, and several of our wonderful uh, local companies as well. My last choice is also a Goodman show, although it's perhaps a little bit different. Um, that would be Cherry Orchard, uh, Robert Falls' sort of valedictory production there. Yeah. He is no longer artistic director. Whether he comes back to direct there again, we don't know yet. But this was a show that he, um, he he's done so much with Chekhov. He came back to this, and I just feel there's this beautiful symmetry in this being possibly the last show that he's going to be directing there. Although, I wouldn't be surprised if he does. <laughs> it pops up again. A lovely production featuring a terrific cast. Um, and honestly, every time I see this play, I think more and more about how you can... The, the beauty of Chekhov for me, and I know not he's not everyone's cup of tea, is how there's always so many parallels to our own lives. Because he's writing about people who are foolish, who are living in a state of delusion. In this particular case, a once wealthy, you know, brother and sister who are no longer wealthy and are being told by the former serf on their estate who has now risen in the world, look, the only way you're going to save yourself financially is to sell your cherry orchard. Let people build little summer homes there. But they're so caught up in the past and so caught up in their own past griefs and their past loves and all the things that, you know, let's be honest, sort of hamper all of us from time to time that they don't really see their way clear. I just thought it was a really, really sort of gorgeous, heartwarming, but also mournful in all the best ways that Chekhov can be. And it was just an ensemble to die for, including Frances Guinan of Steppenwolf Theater as the Aging Servant Fears, Kate Fry as Lovey, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the returned mother who is trying to take care of this estate and really not doing a very good job because she is so caught up in the losses that she has endured. Janet Ulrich Brooks, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and name everybody, but they were all just really wonderful, beautiful sets by Todd Rosenberg. And it just really made me understand this play yet again in a way that I didn't, don't know that I, that I had before. Every time I see it, when it's done really well, I am reminded of why people keep doing this play. You know, there's always that question about, do you do too many of the classics? Should theaters take more risks? This is a perfect example of a theater that did a classic, but also took some risks with it. And it is a reminder, I think, of all that Bob Falls did for the Goodman and indeed for American theater during his time there. Indeed, Bob Falls uh, uh, has been, and we hope will continue to be, a giant of American theater, whatever his future projects may be. You know, the beauty of Chekhov, and he is a beautiful writer, is that he understood and put on his, in the plays, put on the page, he understood that people behave like fools, yeah. and he, Chekhov, loves them all anyway. Right, right. And, you know, my, my late mentor at Columbia College, uh, Sheldon Patinkin, who I know you knew as well, Jonathan, you know, he was talking about Chekhov once, and he said, you know, it's in this world of fools, it can sometimes be hard to know who, who should we be, you know, where do you kind of tip your hand, if indeed you're going to tip your hand. He said, there's also always those characters who tell you, we must keep on. We must keep doing the work. We just have to keep going. And he said, those are the voices that we should be listening to. And I invade, you know, last week we talked about some of the difficulties facing theater in Chicago and elsewhere. But I do feel that there are a lot of artists and a lot of 
administrators and designers and educators who are, in fact, telling us, let's keep going. Let's look at this path. Let's try this. And I think my hope, you know, moving ahead into the new year and beyond is that those voices dominate what can so often be a very, very rancorous discourse around the arts, around politics, around so many other things in our lives. All right. What a list. Of course, all those productions are now closed, but it's always nice to to look back. And then also, I think it serves as a little bit of a reminder. If you are looking for theater ideas throughout the year, tune into the arts section and check out the Dueling Critics, each one of those productions that they just talked about, uh, they reviewed here on the show. So if you are looking for ideas of something to see, tune into the arts section. Carrie, Jonathan, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Carrie, and to all our listeners. And a healthy one. And you're tuned into the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. We're continuing our look back at 2023. Next up, we're taking a closer look at the year in jazz. Joining me in studio are DCB jazz hosts Leslie Karras and Paula Bella. Welcome back. Thank you. Happy New Year. And Happy you New too. Year to you. So I remember last year when we sat down, Samara Joy was on both of your lists, your, your top jazz albums of 2022. And then a month and a half later, she won the Best New Artist Grammy. And then her career's even taken off even more since then. You know what was funny about that? So I actually had to do a double take at some point when I was going through all the stuff because that album was a big enough hit that it was still on the radio charts in like June of this year. It's like, wait a second, when did that come out again? Oh, yeah, it was 2022. Yeah, so. yeah. Huge, huge jazz hit uh, crossed over a little bit. So let's get into this year's list. Every year I have you both on to talk about your favorite jazz albums of the past year. This year we'd, I've asked you to narrow it down to your top three, and then we'll do some honorable mentions. So, Paul, what, what album do you want to highlight first? Let's go with John Schofield's Uncle John's Band. Probably one of the more straight-ahead things we've heard from Sco in a long, long time. Vicente Archer, Bill Stewart on bass and drums, Schofield kicking in on everything from Bud Palatunes to uh, The Grateful Dead and Neil Young, and doing a great job on all of it. The only thing I was shocked by was that he named it Uncle John's Band and didn't put more dead tunes on there because he had been playing a whole bunch of them on his last tour. Uh, But really, really good record. is how deep off that album leslie let's turn to you how about you what's what's the first album that comes to mind well there's one that uh, bassist clark summers came out with a little while ago and he's assembled a very large ensemble uh, especially for judging by what he's done in the past usually he's kind of in a trio format he's known for his work with kurt elling but uh, during the pandemic um, he decided to go back to school basically and so he went to depaul university Uh, and studied intensively with Dana Hall, whom he's recorded a lot with, Dana Hall on drums. And over the course of those studies, he began both writing new music and revisiting music he had written before, but this time envisioning it for uh, much, uh, many more musicians than he's used to working with. And so over the course of a couple of years, he consulted with various people as to what they thought of some of his music, and they would you know, give him some feedback. 
and uh, at the end of the day, he came out with all original music on the new album, Feast Ephemera, and it is just, it's very, um, it, it's almost cinematic music, you know, it's very evocative, and I hear new things every time I listen to it, so it just, it really rewards repeated listening. So as I've been compiling everybody's top five lists, uh, Clark Summers' Feast Ephemera actually made a few of the lists. And honestly, it, it would have made my top 10 if we had done top 10 lists, um, as would I think your next one will, uh, would have too. So yeah, a really, really excellent album. And you know, when you say cinematic too, it really reminds me of another Chicago bass player who kind of does a little bit of that Matt Eulery, uh, very much in the same vein. So next up uh, for you, Paul, I believe is, is it Simon Moulier? Yeah, even on the first try. <laughs> when I wrote about this one on the WDCB Music Lounge page, I said, this, this guy is under the radar right now, but if he keeps putting out albums like this, he is not going to be under the radar for long. And his first one was really, really good. This one is even better. Not only is he vibes based drums trio doing that, which is kind of odd in its own right, but then just the scope of what he's doing and you know, Peggy's Blue Skylet is a Charles Mingus tune written for like eight pieces, makes it sound fine with the trio. Ikaro by Horace Silver, again, like written with Horace Silver's arranging in mind where he could make a quintet sound like a big band. So were you saying, was he kind of under the radar before this album? I mean, he I, I think he probably still is to some degree, uh, but he shouldn't be. I, that's, that's a, it's a great record. So Also on Leslie's honorable mention list. That's right. I would agree. And this has just come out recently, mm-hmm. and I've just been kind of getting to know the album. And the tune you played, um, Igro, uh, is one of my favorites, a really jaunty feel to the whole thing. So he's true to the, you know, to the, the music as it was originally conceived, but he's really breathed some new life into it, and it's a, it's a whole lot of fun. Next on your list is an artist I'm familiar with because you did a, a piece on the arts section. You you interviewed Maddie Vogler. Her new album made your, your top three. That's right. You know, I first saw her perform with vocalist Christy Bennett, and I was uh, really struck by how soulful her playing was. So I got to know her a little bit during that performance and asked her um, if she would get in touch with me if she had something new coming out, and she did. And I was so glad to hear that because when I sat down with this album, uh, there were a few tunes in particular that really jumped out at me. Uh, one of them is named after a Cuban dish, but it's not just obviously about the food. It's about how many times she's enjoyed that dish with her Cuban grandmother. It's called Ropa Vieja. Mm-hmm. 
You know what? I got a chance to talk with her, too. She credits uh, Tito Carrillo, who is uh, playing trumpet on the album, uh, with uh, really kind of pushing her and having enough confidence in her to to record the music that she's been composing. And so um, he does just absolutely brilliant work on the album, um, but to also um, some great other players, too. Jake Shapiro, uh, pianist, Matt Gold, guitar, Sam Peters on bass, and Neil Hemphill on the drums. And uh, I look forward to spending even more time with the album. It just uh, really grows on you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm sitting here with DCB jazz host Leslie Karras and Paula Bella. They're sharing their favorite jazz albums of 2023. Next up for Paul, Lakeisha Benjamin, a saxophonist, mm-hmm. and a new album, Phoenix. Yeah, and you want to talk about an album that touches like every single bass that it possibly could in one record. Th- this is it. She gets on fusion. She gets on a little bit of a hip-hop bent. She does some straight-ahead stuff. Um it, it just it goes everywhere like the, the the guest stars on it patrice russians on there that's the one that really jumps to mind um george ann muldrow's on there it's just it's fantastic um and it's a it's kind of a great way if you're going to introduce somebody who's a straight ahead jazz listener to some more uh forward thinking sounds you could do a lot worse than phoenix to kind of ease them into that because you know it it doesn't start you know like way out but it gets there you know it doesn't start super electronic but it gets there and it it just it does a lot of stuff and and she does everything on there well so in that regard it's a it's a great jumping off point from her last record where she did a whole bunch of uh, stuff from John and Alice Coltrane um you know like she took their work and then in this one all right it's time to do it on mine and it was it's great so Kind of a cool album cover. Mm-hmm. Got some metallic, a metallic cape that goes along with her her sax. Are we gonna get you one of those for the new year, Gary? Yeah, exactly. Have that ready for tonight. So let's move over to to Leslie. Then, what was your final your final pick of your top three? Well, the two albums that we talked about already by Clark Summers and Maddie Vogler are both by Chicago-based artists. They're all original material. This last one is uh, Jeb Patton's Preludes. And actually, it was uh, um, Paul who convinced me to, to give it a, a second try. I had just kind of dipped in and, and wasn't quite sure about it. But the more I listened to it, the more I really appreciated it. And I think partly because um, Jeb Patton is really drawing on his classical roots, not only listening to classical music growing up with his father playing it all the time, um, but also during the pandemic, kind of going back to it to really work on his technique. And he came up with some beautiful melding of classical and jazz um, that still always has a great groove.
that tune was prelude in G minor. You hear the groove in that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the funny thing. You know, you, you have to wait for it sometimes, especially that one. But, uh, but he's got some great players with him on it as well. And he does include his rendition of Prelude to a Kiss uh, for the final track on that album. You know, I mean, Bud Powell said that Bach, are, Bach already played bebop. It just took Bud Powell <laughs> and Charlie Parker to make him swing. And we're kind of getting after that there, too. That's right. <laughs> Those are uh, Leslie and Paul's top three, and then there's going to be an extensive uh, top jazz albums of the year list on the WDCB website in the new year, so keep a lookout for that. We didn't have time to do like a top five, but I'm going to open it up for some honorable mentions uh, for some albums that you want to show some love to. All right, so there were two that I really wanted to put a spotlight on. One is George Freeman's The Good Life. Uh, George uh, wonderful guitarist, wonderful human being. Let's, let's start there. Uh, playing not only the last notes that Joey DeFrancesco ever recorded, uh, but also there's a trio on there with George and Christian McBride and Carl Allen. Uh, it's got like the highlight of the record, this tune called One, Two, Three, Four. Um, and it's just so much fun. And it's so much fun to hear George just being able to like kick back and relax and play with some absolute superstars. Well, staying in Chicago, um, Derek Gardner, the trumpeter and who is uh, running the jazz school at uh, Northwestern now, came out with a new release after visiting Ghana. He calls it Pan Africa, and it's got lots of great texture, um, really exciting playing on that recording. One that I know a lot of folks around these parts didn't like, but I loved, was uh, Katie George's featuring which had a whole bunch of great guest artists on it. Jocelyn Gould was on there. Maybe not the most soulful singer in the universe, but chops were just on point and uh, really swinging. And it, it was a nice record. So I hope we hear some more from her what, in the future. What do you mean some folks weren't? <laughs> uh, I think me and Jay were like the only two that played it. Oh, okay. So. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, you know, there was one that uh, made both our lists mm-hmm. by the uh, Canadian trumpeter Rochelle Terrien. Yeah. And Mio Gar, which is uh, her Latin jazz project um, most recently. And that is just a stunning album. The opening cut alone, which is originally written for um, classical guitar, Capriccio Arabe, is absolutely gorgeous. So um, really, uh, really enjoying that one. As was uh, Moments Notice, which is old uh John Coltrane tune, and uh, she does a really nice job on that. Dizzy Gillespie's Konalma. I was bummed out that The Wizard was not the Black Sabbath tune, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, actually, I, I had said, you know, 2023 was kind of a banner year for some great Latin jazz stuff. Not only uh, Rochelle Therrien, but also uh, Jane Bennett and McKeke put out an absolutely stunning album this year, uh, Playing With Fire, right here in town, Roy McGrath's Menhunhe, uh Juan Pastor's Chinchano with Cachito. Just a whole lot of great Latin jazz came out this year. And if, if you're a fan of this kind of music, uh, you could do a whole lot worse uh, than the offerings from 2023. So dig in. I didn't prep you guys for this, but any uh, any live performance standout that you guys got to check out in the past year? Uh, Theotis Rogers at the Jazz Fest. Uh, just I, I don't care who was on the main stage. I don't care who was playing anywhere else. Dude owned the entire festival in 45 minutes. Wow. High so. praise. Well, at the festival, there was someone I wanted to see very badly, but I, and I heard great reports of, but sadly I didn't get a chance to see her. Uh, that was Brandy Younger. 
who is here with some uh, phenomenal artists like Micaiah McRaven on drums. And uh, that was one that I was really hoping to catch, but uh, I, I missed it, sadly. Micaiah McRaven will be at the Orchestra Hall in the, the new year, so excited to see what he's up to. Paul, Leslie, thanks so much for coming in and continuing our New Year's tradition. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. That's all for this edition of the Arts Section, the last of 2023. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section, the first of 2024. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Happy New Year's Eve. If you are going out, please be safe. Thanks for listening. Blossom on the tree, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. Dragonfly out in the sun, you know what I mean, don't you know? Butterflies all having fun, you know what I mean. Sleep in peace when day is done, that's what I mean. And this old world is a new world in a bold world.